Um, the reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 6, and it's the whole chapter. Darius decided to appoint 120 governors to hold office throughout his empire. In addition, he chose Daniel and two others to supervise the governors and to look after the king's interests. Daniel soon showed that he could do better work than the other supervisors or the governors. Because he was so outstanding, the king considered putting him in charge of the whole empire. Then the other supervisors and governors tried to find something wrong with the way Daniel administered the empire, but they couldn't because Daniel was reliable and did not do anything wrong or dishonest. They said to one another, we are not going to find anything of which to accuse Daniel unless it is something in connection with his religion. So they went to see the king and said, King, Darius, may your majesty live forever. All of us who administer your empire, the supervisors, the governors, the lieutenant governors and other officials have agreed that your majesty should issue an order and enforce it strictly. Give orders that for 30 days no one will be permitted to request anything from any god or from any human apart from your majesty. Anyone who violates this order is to be thrown into a pit filled with lions. So let your majesty issue this order and sign it, and it will be in force, a law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed. And so King Darius signed the order. When Daniel learnt that the order had been signed, he went home. In an upstairs room of his house, there were windows that faced towards Jerusalem. There, just as he'd always done, he knelt down at the open windows and prayed to God three times a day. <coughs> when Daniel's enemies observed him praying to God, all of them went together to the king to accuse Daniel. They said, Your Majesty, you signed an order that for the next 30 days, anyone who requested anything from any god or from any human, except for you, would be thrown into a pit filled with lions. The king replied, yes, a strict order, a law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, one of your exiles from Judah does not respect your majesty or obey the order you issued. He prays regularly three times a day. When the king heard this, he was upset and did his best to find some way to rescue Daniel. He kept trying until sunset. Then Daniel's enemies came back to the king and said to him, Your majesty knows that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, no order which the king issues can be changed. So the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and he was thrown into the pit filled with lions. He said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve so loyally, rescue you. A stone was put over the mouth of the pit and the king placed his own royal seal and the seal of his nobleman on the stone so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to the palace and spent a sleepless night without food or any form of entertainment. At dawn, the king got up and hurried to the pit. When he got there, he called out anxiously, Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Was the God you serve so loyally able to save you from the lions? Daniel answered, May your majesty live forever. God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions so that they wouldn't hurt me. He did this because he knew that I was innocent and because I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders for Daniel to be put up out of the pit. So they pulled him up and saw that he had not been hurt at all, for he trusted God. Then the king gave orders to arrest all the men who had accused Daniel, and they were thrown together into, with their wives and their children into the pit filled with lions. Before they even reached the bottom of the pit, they pounced on him and broke all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to the people of all nations, races and languages on earth, Greetings, I command that throughout my empire everyone should fear and respect Daniel's God. He is a living God and he will rule forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his power will never come to an end. He saves and rescues. He performs wonders and miracles in heaven and on earth. He saved Daniel from being killed by the lions. Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Before I pray, who's stolen the Bible? We went to, there's a big Bible that we, with easy, and it matches the words on the screen. Uh, Rose, you did really well. Um, but, but who's stolen our Bible? We're missing our Bible. If anyone knows where the big Bible is, can you, can you let me know? Yeah, that's right. Someone, so someone, someone else broke in and they did nothing but steal our Bible. That's a, a communi- and we've lost half the communion cups there. Mm. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word to us. It's a light for our path. It is food for our soul. May it be so for us this morning. Amen. Um, A couple of weeks ago when uh, Jill and I just got back from our trip to Australia and Israel, um, I promised you that I wouldn't fill all my talks with anecdotes from the Holy Land. um, And uh, uh, and I'm not going to do that today. (laughs) Except that, um, uh, given the events of the last 48 hours, um, there's some really impactful stuff that's going on and it necessarily uh, impacts uh, and relates. It, it, we, I can't preach this without um, recognising what's going on, um, partly because, and I don't want to cheapen what's going on with the happy snaps of Jill and I uh, from, from cool places there, um, but it connects. And one of the ways in which it connects is that in, in some ways, it, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Jill and I, uh, just a few weeks ago, were standing in the places where those bombs are now dropping. Um, and, and that included in Jerusalem, where we stood in the rubble of King David's palace. And we could see there, you can see, layer upon layer of both life and destruction. You can see, you go back, you know, Ottomans, Crusaders, Romans destroyed the place in AD 70 and before that there's nothing new under the sun before that in about 500 BC there was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the exiles were walked into exile 
past Rachel's tomb near the town of Bethlehem, which is a place that's really close to where Jill and I, our heart is, and also where we were staying. And it says up there, that's where the quote for Rachel, uh, Rachel here, Rachel crying for her children, applied to the first martyrs, the, the, the innocents that were killed by Herod, but also applied to Rachel weeping as her children, people like Daniel, were marched off in irons and chains uh, to Babylon. And whether we like it or not, this story isn't just a nice little Sunday school story to be activated with felt or whiteboard markers. Um, it speaks to real history. And Daniel finds himself in the city of Babylon, having come from a place of destruction. He is a captive. He has, it's reverse colonialism. They have taken the best and the brightest of Israel and they've brought them into Babylon and there they are trying to wring the Jewishness out of them like, like squeezing cheap dye from a rag. And that's the, what they face. Come in here and become a good Babylonian. Learn our ways and forget what you had. Yet Daniel throughout his whole career is pining for the land. He is grieving for the loss of the temple, that place where they go, God is with us. And they, and they have beheld the murder of their royal family. There's, there's trauma in them. And that this is the context that they've been brought into. And so you can imagine the question that they are asking, and I imagine it's a question that's resonating throughout Israel right now, is the question, has God left us? Has God abandoned us? Everything on the face of it that he seems to have promised us has turned to dust and to rubble and to blood running through the streets. So has God abandoned us? And if he has, and we're now surrounded by powerful people who control my life, what do I do? Do I give in to it? because that's the reality of our circumstances, or do I resist it and hold on to maybe some defiant rebellion, or perhaps, and I think this is what we see more in Daniel, how do we hold on to the hope of the ways of the Lord in this foreign land where I have been dragged in chains? And that <laughs> sort of becomes real very quickly. And then what do we do with that? Over against this story, alongside the events in the Middle East right now, how do we bring our own experiences without either cheapening our own life or the experiences that are happening right now or two and a half thousand years ago? How might we relate? There is an underpinning learning and teaching, and that's why this story is in the Bible. It's there to instruct us and to give us wisdom. And one of the fundamental frameworks that you see in Daniel throughout it is this sense, and we're familiar with these words, I think, uh, the now and the not yet. Right? We hold on to that. There's a now in Daniel's experience. He's experiencing exile. He's experiencing pain. There's a now in Israel at the moment, death and destruction. 
there is a now in our own lives as we experience the traumas and the difficulties of our own existence. There's also a not yet. Not yet. The Lord is doing something and it's not yet. And that hope they hold on to also has a now about it. For us, we know there is a now. Jesus has done something. He has spoken a certain hope. He has given us certain forgiveness and salvation. And he's achieved something on the cross that makes something rock solid. That's now. But there's also a not yet. Justice, peace, goodness, rest from our labours, the lion laying down with the lamb, the time of earth of imperishable bodies that can't be killed and of tears being wiped away. These, these are things that we hope for but are not yet. But we hope for them. So you can see these questions, these now and not yet tension. There is nothing new under the sun and there certainly aren't questions that are old. They're being asked even now. And by the time we get to the story of this thing with the, the lions, we recognise that Daniel has been pondering these things. Um, we've seen Daniel in the last few weeks doing all sorts of things. Um, and, and, but by the time we get to this bit, he's grown up. A lot of the other stories have happened when Daniel is full of youthful zeal. And we've seen him bravely and idealistically resist the idolatry around him. And we've seen God lead them through the dangers of political intrigue and violence. But now things have changed. The government has changed. The Babylonians have been overthrown by the Medes and Persians. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. And as we found out a couple of weeks ago, the writing was on the wall for his son. And it came true pretty quick. And so now Darius, or Cyrus, sometimes we can't quite work out if it's the same person, but they were a Persian king has come to the throne, and Daniel is an older, wiser man. He has authority. He has a degree of comfort. He has more to lose. He is now distinguished above all the high officials, and he has an excellent spirit. So in some senses, the not yet that he was holding on for has become a now for him. He has received a degree of favour. And that's now reality for him. But it's all about to be turned upside down. Darius comes to the throne and the politics of the civil service kick in. And uh, unlike English civil service politics, which it's a little bit more bloody. And the officials who are competitors with Daniel seize their moment and being the Machiavellian power movers that they are, they latch onto the one weakness that they can exploit. And the one weakness that Daniel has in their framework is his loyalty to God. And so they make their move. They get an irrevocable law passed that's if, that says that no prayers can be said, no religious rites or petitions can be made to any divine being except it be done to the king. So, no praying unless it is state-sanctioned praying. No petitioning Almighty God unless it is submitted and approved by statute. It's oppression by bureaucracy. There is nothing new under the sun. And as the story unfolds, Daniel finds out about this law and he still goes about his spiritual practice. 
Three times a day, he prays privately in his upper chamber, which has windows opening towards Jerusalem. He's not being rebellious. He is still one of the high officials of Babylon. He is no enemy of the state. He is serving the country in which he lives with dedication and professionalism. Yet he will not let, not let go of the thing that centers him and gives him a foundation to life. He opens his windows towards Jerusalem and he prays. And so he looks back to his former home and it's not a wistful, nostalgic looking back. He is holding on to the hope that it represents. He is holding on to the vision of the promised land that embodies and captures the very promise of God. He is trusting that God is going to bring about that which is not yet. And it's that hope that moves him. I preached this same talk last week at St. Tim's. And I wrote, two weeks ago, Jill and I were in Bethlehem. And that meant something, and now it means a whole lot more. Bethlehem's now shut down, closed off. You can't get in, you can't get out. If we were there right now, we would, have need, we would need to be extracted by the British Embassy. We were there during Jewish New Year. And so we sat with our friends, our Christian friends, and um, we uh, celebrated and drank pomegranate juice and prayed and ate together and celebrated. Now the thing is about the Jewish New Year is it's not like a Western one. It's not just a, hey, let's have a bit of a booze up because we've added another number to the calendar. It actually holds on to something. It's to say this new year has begun and so we look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth that will come at the end of time. As the new year begins, let us hold to that hope. Let us look to that divine future. Let us embrace the not yet. Each year we seize hold of that hope. And you eat and drink pomegranates because they are a symbol of an Edenic paradise. Pomegranates are in the temple because it's meant to represent Eden. Pomegranates are in every synagogue as a part of the aesthetic because it speaks to that hope of a fruitful place. And so in our limited way, Jill and I join in with that prayerful hope. In the midst of the complex, broken world, we cried out with that act, come Lord Jesus, do your work and achieve your goal. And we did it next to a nine metre tall concrete fence that runs down the middle of the road where Mary and Joseph walked and divides Rachel's tomb off from the town that surrounds it. That alone was a mark of the now against which we go. There's another now in Jesus, bring what's left. And a week ago that meant a lot and today it means a lot more. As friends of ours, in a very vulnerable position, uh, literally fearful of blood running down the streets and of war that is in Gaza coming to Bethlehem. They pray in some ways 
in the same way as Daniel. Maybe not physically towards Jerusalem because they're only six miles away. <laughs> but they pray towards that hope and they hold on to it. So now Daniel does the same thing. And we ask a question of him that we ask of ourselves. How can we give up on that hope? How can he set aside, even just for 30 days, the thing that defines his life? And so he prays towards a hope-filled vision of Jerusalem. And as he does that, as he tries to be light in the darkness, his enemies pounce. And now the king's hand is forced. And despite the king's distress, he is thrown into the lion's den with nothing but a prayer. It's actually a prayer from the king. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And of course, God does. Daniel the lamb lays down with the lions and ironically he prefigures in himself the not yet that he has hoped for. And there's actually also a prefiguring of a judgment. Harsh, hard to comprehend. Yet those who brought the darkness find their own despise at the lions who were peaceful to Daniel, and they are eradicated. That's the story. But what do we do with it? The difficulty of well-known stories like this is that we have seen them in every single children's Bible that we have ever seen. Nice little colourful stories of Daniel lying down with purring lions. And we get to the end and we go, what's, the, what's, the, what's this story for in the children's Bible? And I don't know about you, but I have invariably heard it shared, something along the lines of, if you have courage like Daniel, you too can lie down with the, with the lions in your life. So what lions are in your life that we may be courageous before them? We make it all about individual moralism. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. Jesus, in fact, said, you know, do not worry. Consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Face the things that you're scared of and do not worry. Just seek first the things of the kingdom and all the protections and things that you worry about will be handled for you. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not a bad lesson to take. But is that what this story is about? That's not the reason for the story. Go back to the original scenario. People in exile, people facing the prospect of bloodshed and war, people in an ordinary world facing the traumas and the difficulties that we have. What's the defining question? Has God abandoned us? Is he still alive? Does this work? Is there hope? Is he close? And we could ask the same question today. Is God still here? With the news that we've seen in a distant land, is he still here in the darkness and difficulties of our own life? And we can look at all the places where there is war and where there is hardness of heart between fellow humans and ask, is God still real? And we cry out 
And the reason why we cry out is because even though human activism is a good thing, we realise that when we look at places like Israel today, we know that peace is going to take a miracle. Peace is a miracle. Reconciliation is a miracle. Hope and healing is a miracle. The resurrected life of the kingdom of God lived to all its fullness here in the nice, comfortable West is a miracle. It's a miracle from God that is ours to pursue, but it's a miracle. And so we ask, Lord, do you still do them? Are you still alive? Is God still God? Do we turn our faces to Jesus like Daniel turned his face towards Jerusalem? Do we do that with any sense of purpose or desire? Or is it just a forlorn facade? Is he still alive? And this story is the answer to that question. And the answer comes not on the lips of Daniel. It actually comes on the lips of a Persian king. He writes a letter, a letter to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. And perhaps we might count ourselves amongst the recipients of that letter. And this is his letter. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? Because he is the living God, enduring forever. And his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So we read this story. And yes, we should have our courage built up within us. But let us hope. Let us pray. Let us tremble and lean into this truth that we hold together. We read the Bible to be reminded of truths like this. We come together on a Sunday and gather around the very symbol and emblem that says that Jesus died and is alive again. Our God lives. The Lord is the living God. His kingdom is coming. It shall never be destroyed. The prayer I prayed three weeks ago is a prayer that we often pray. We say, Lord, your kingdom come and begin in us. Three weeks ago, as we stood in Bethlehem, we prayed, Lord, your kingdom come and begin here in the land of your promise. So we hold on to a miracle for a real place as much as we hold on to a miracle for us. Lord, you are a living God. Live in us. Amen.